Wow, there you are. Hey, it's good to see you. It is really good to be back. Um, I want to thank Pastor Aaron. Was that, I, that was a great series this summer on joy. And uh, I really appreciated his leadership in that. I was following remotely, but now I see your faces. I see like, oh, I see the effects. There's joy out here, that kind of persistent, resistant, defiant joy, no matter what you're going through. Uh, that's awesome. And uh, today we're starting a new series uh, that we call Promises. And I want to invite you just to think about this for a second, that, a pr- that faith is a response to a promise. Does that sound right to you? Faith is a response to a promise. Biblical faith is trust, trust. And it's trust not in ourselves, but in another. One who has made a great promise. Uh, So to be authentic people of faith, we need to know what has been promised us. We need to know the promises of God. And that's kind of the thesis for this uh, new series. And I I just wonder how many of us are disillusioned in our faith today because we, play, or we have placed our trust in something that God has actually not promised. And that'll disappoint you. Or I wonder how many of us are disinterested in our faith because it just doesn't seem relevant. And the reason for that is we didn't know the promises that we could be trusting. And so either way, I think the, it's important for us to really understand what and what not has God promised us. So we're gonna look at six uh, promises, and there are, of course, many more, but we're just going to want to focus in. So we'll look at, uh, at one promise each week. And I took from uh, this title from something that St. Peter said when he said uh, in, in chapter uh, 1, verse 4 of Second Peter, his second letter, he says, God has given us his precious and very great promises. His precious and very great promises. Do we, do we cherish them, I guess is the question that I'm asking myself. So today our first promise is in Psalm 32. Would you open up a Bible, uh, navigate over to Psalm 32, verse 8, and I'm going to ask you to to read this. We'll put it on the screen, but you might like to look at the whole psalm yourself. Um, If you're able, would you please stand? Let's read aloud together. We'll read the whole verse, um, and when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. So what's the promise here? Well, let's have another look at the text, keep it open. And let's ask some questions of the psalm to see if we can get an answer to that. First, let's ask ourselves, to whom is the promise given? I will instruct you, he says. God's promise comes to us as a personal address. You, singular, you singular, not y'all, but you. So God's promise comes to us not as abstract theory or generic principle or universal truth. It comes very personally. You. He calls us. He speaks to us. He wants to engage us. He wants to elicit a response that comes from the depths of our being. I I will instruct you, he says. When God makes his promise, he makes it personally and intimately. You, he says. It's just as he spoke to so many people in the Bible. 
Moses, Moses. Saul, Saul. Mary. So God's promise comes as a personal address to you. Secondly, God's promise comes to us even when we're not at our best. And I really want to pause here. This is so important and inviting to me. Now, notice how this psalm begins. Happy are those whose transgression, full stop, is forgiven, whose sin, full stop, is covered. This is how the psalm begins. Now, so picture a man or a woman who's not at their best. Okay, they're not at their best. Of them, we could speak of transgression, which, as you know, is crossing a boundary. It's going off the path. It's losing your way. Of them, we could speak of sin. This is the person to whom this promise is made. You could, you could get a little bit of insight in that when you compare it to Psalm 1, because Psalm 1 begins identically to Psalm 32. They're both starting out happy are. They're, we call these beatitudes. Jesus gave some of these as well. Happy are those, Psalm uh, 32 says, Who's, uh, who do not follow the advice of the wicked or do not take the path that sinners tread. So here's a picture of someone, by contrast, who's at their best. You know, she meditates on the word of the Lord. She does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. She's at her best. That's Psalm 1, but we're looking at Psalm 32, okay? This is for somebody who's lost his way. This is a promise for one of whom we could write, happy are those who transgress. Now, this is, this is getting at the good news. I see myself here. God has, pro- has a promise for me and for you when we're at our best and when we're not at our best. Like this one. I will instruct you. This is a promise for David after he's sinned with Bathsheba. This is a promise for Moses after he's killed a man and kind of given up on his life and gone out into the wilderness in old age. This is a promise for Naomi, whose relatives have passed away in rapid succession, and she's drowning in her own grief and bitterness. This is a promise for Esther, who's biting her fingernails because she's being asked to speak truth to power the, the king, and she's struggling to muster the courage. This is a promise for the guy, you know the guy on TikTok that goes, nobody's ever gonna know. They're gonna know, nobody's ever gonna know. They're gonna know, have you seen that? I mean, I don't even know, whatever he does, this is a promise for him. Right? And everybody of us, the rest of us who kind of enjoy that video. A friend of mine, a young man said to her recently, I think I'm just lost. It's kind of an interesting and vulnerable statement. I, th- I think I'm just lost. This is a guy who's been out of the country and he's been in and out of school and he doesn't have a job and his parents are like, would you kind of get it together? And he doesn't really know how. And he just said to my friend, I just think I'm lost. Well, this is a promise for that guy. This is a promise for him. I will instruct you, the promise goes. I'm I'm speaking to you. This is a promise for you, the Lord says. To rebels and exiles in a foreign land, do not fear, he says, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. And then Jesus, to prostitutes and hypocrites and tax collectors, Jesus says, my sheep, my sheep, My sheep hear my voice, and I will lose none of them. 
He speaks a promise to all of us, whether we're at our best or even perhaps especially when we're at our worst. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. All right, that's the one to whom the promise is spoken, okay? Let's now ask another question. What is the promise? Uh, I think it's guidance. So listen again, I will teach you the way. Doesn't that sound like guidance? I will teach you the way. The Lord here is promising guidance for when we're lost, stuck, confused, abandoned, afraid, or discouraged. The Lord here offers a promise for us in our hopes and dreams when we want to make a change, when we want to make a difference with our lives. He promises to be with us. He promises to guide us. I like the way the New Living Translation renders this. It says, the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. What a great promise that is. What a great promise. So how does it work? There's a story told about a couple of guys that meet at a college reunion and they're talking about the financial success of their lives. And one guy says to the other, so how did that happen for you? And he goes, well, you're not going to believe it started with the Bible. Really? Yeah. I opened up my Bible and I put my finger in. And I just read the word underneath my finger was the word oil. So I invested in oil. <laughs> and then I turned again and put my finger down and the word was gold. So I invested in gold. Pfft, you can't imagine what's happened in the markets. And the guy goes, wow. He couldn't get, wait to get back to his hotel room. Opens up the door, pulls out the Gideon Bible. He flips it open. He puts his finger right down there. And he looks and it says, chapter 11. <laughs> Bankruptcy. The point is, that's not the way it works. We're not to treat the Bible like it's a Ouija board or a, a fortune cookie or something like that. Hear me say this. Guidance is not about God making all the hard decisions for you. Guidance is about God giving you the capacity to make hard decisions. Do, do you get that? Guidance is not about God making all the hard decisions for you. Guidance is about God giving you the capacity to make hard decisions for yourself. This is the promise. There's a big difference between the two. And the text is really careful, even for ancient people, to clarify that. Look at verse 9. It goes on. Next verse. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper, horse or a mule, must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Now, if you've ever been around horses, you know they're actually super smart. Horses are very intelligent animals. They know how to get places. What they don't know is uh, how to get there where the rider wants you to go. What they don't have, they have intelligence, but they do not have understanding. That is to say, they don't know what's in the mind of the rider. In fact, if you're on a horse and you're on a long ride, as soon as the rider turns the horse back home, what happens? The horse starts to speed up. We'll just take head towards the barn. They know. See, here's what a horse knows. Without understanding, without understanding what's in the mind of the rider, they're going to naturally take you to the past. They're going to naturally go back to the familiar. They're going to naturally go back to what once was and maybe not should still be. If that horse is ever going to go to a new place, to a better place, if the rider is going to take them there, it's going to have to be that the rider will compel them, right? You have to, she has to put a piece of metal in the horse's mouth, a bit, and straps around the horse's head like a cage, a bridle, in order to like 
turn your head, the horse's head, to the right or to the left or to stop or to go, literally to compel and to direct the horse that way. And the, the psalmist is saying, the Lord is saying through the psalmist, I don't want to give you guidance that way. That's not who you are. That's not how this works. The Lord's saying, I can do that if you want. I mean, I could jerk your head and compel you to start, stop, or turn. I can open doors in front of you or close doors in front of you. But no, that's not the way I want to guide you. I want to guide you with understanding. I want you to know what's in my mind. I don't want to make the decision for you. I want you to grow into the kind of person who can make the decision for yourself. I I want you to grow into the kind of person who would make the decision that you know I would make if I were in your shoes at the same juncture. You you see the difference? In, In other words... God isn't just trying to get us somewhere, A or B. God is trying to help us become something. He's trying to grow you into something. He's trying to get you to think his thoughts and to become like him. This is the project that we're a part of. In fact, the the words that are used suggest this in verse 8, in this promise, the word I will instruct It literally means I will cause you to be wise. I will cause you to be wise. See, that's transformation, isn't it? And the word teach there is the same verb for the word Torah. You know, Torah means law, like God's law. It's also what we refer to as the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the the Torah. I've given you this. The Lord's saying, hey, I've, I've given you a brain. I've given you a brain. I've given you the scriptures, my word. I reveal truth to you in this text. If you're a believer, I've put my Holy Spirit within you. I equip you in a lively community of believers called the church. And I call you to an active process of renewal and transformation. Now, I know, I know, this is not what I always want. I would love to have something easier. I so often find myself saying, God, just... It'd be so easy if you just tell me, just tell me where you want me to go, right? Just tell me what I'm supposed to say on Sunday. Here's a blank sheet of paper, yellow pad. You do the rest, right? I said, come on, just tell me where I should live. This apartment or that apartment, just tell me. God says, no, I'm not gonna do that. I mean, God's somewhere up in heaven and I think he's saying, George, look, first of all, let me just tell you, I've already told you an awful lot. And so here's my question. How are you doing with what I've already told you? Right? (laughs) I do not like this question. For example, he said, why don't you start there? Before you ask me, God, what's your will for me in this job or that job? What are you doing with Micah 6.8? We prayed it earlier. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your gods, Micah 6.8. And the Lord says, George, you know, before you ask me a question like, what's your will? Should I marry her or not? Let me ask you, what are you doing with 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 3? Which reads, God's will for you is to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. So yes, being guided, directed by the Lord is an active mutual process. It requires work. <laughs> you know, you gotta read God's word. You gotta trust his promises. You gotta live under the authority of those promises and actually put them into process. It's an iterative process, this experience of being guided. God is also saying, you know what? 
I've told you a lot, but I'm also not going to tell you everything. And, And if that's frustrating to you, ask yourself, have you ever been in a relationship with someone who told you what to do all the time? Have you ever been in a relationship like that? How, how life-giving is that, right? No, Lord said, I'm not gonna, this is, that's not what this is about. This is not the Stepford Wives, right, where husbands build robots who just do whatever they want them to do. That's not what this is about. God's not trying to control you. He's trying to liberate you. He's trying to free you. God wants an authentic relationship with you. And he gives you guidance to help you mature into the person who can have that mutual experience of trust one to another. This, by the way, is what you do as parents. You good parents. I wish I could go back and start all over again, although I don't because I don't have the energy. But I wish I knew this. What you, I think, I'll probably already know, that a good parent knows how to relate to their child in an appropriate way at every stage of their development. So when they're babies, you do everything for them or it doesn't happen. When they're children, you tell them what to do uh, it, it, very particularly, right? Mom, dad ever tell you what to do? There's a reason for that. You're a child. When they're adolescents, though, that's when mom and dad's churches take a half step back and they don't tell you what to do, right? And this can be very frustrating. I mean, you throw yourself down on the couch, even though you're all sweaty and everything, and you go, just tell me what to do. And the wise mother steps back and she goes, oh, Wow, so what you're saying is you really want to go to the football game on Saturday and be with your friends. That's really a good thing, isn't it? And you also don't really want to stay up super late Sunday night trying to finish your project for Monday. That's a really good thing, isn't it? Man, this is a really hard one. I wonder what you're going to (laughs) do, right? And what's happening is mom is now encouraging you to incorporate the values that she's been teaching you your whole life into your decision-making process. See, I don't want you to be extrinsically motivated with a cage around your head. I want you to be intrinsically motivated. I want your choices to grow out of the dignity that you possess as one made in the image of God. Oh, how loving and wise our Savior is that at every point in the Christian life, God knows just how to guide you, just what you need in order to progress on the way. I can remember when I was a young Christian, I, I, did, I, didn't, I came to faith a little bit later in life, and I, I, early on I learned a set of convictions that came out, just my simple reading of the, the New Testament. And convictions like, you know, that God speaks through this book, uh, that um, he never gives up on me or anybody else, that every single person has a purpose in, in life. The, the, the gospel is the key that unlocks the human soul. Just a set of convictions and others. And I remember them very clearly when they were new to me. I was like, wow. But here's what happened. I held on to them. I, I, I lived under the authority of those promises, and now I'm old enough to look back 30 years and go, wow, those convictions have just deepened into deep passions in my life now. And they've actually shaped and directed my life, and they do today, even more so than they ever have. And I realize I've been guided. He's, he's, been, he's been guiding me, this shepherd, all along this way. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. That's the promise. Guidance. 
So lastly, let's ask who, the who question. Who is it who makes this great and precious promise to us? Who is it who does the guiding? Well, finally we see I. I will, he says. But who is this I? Who will? Who wills? Who is it that has a will for your life, a will for your neighbor, a will from, for this great planet? Who is it? Well, the psalmist refers to him as the Lord. And if you look carefully at your text, m- m- most texts, you'll see that word Lord is rendered differently. It's in small caps, all caps. And the reason for that is it's, it's the translator's way of telling you that there is a special name here that the Lord gave Israel. It's the name God spoke to Moses first at the burning bush, I am. And to the Israelite over time, that name, the Lord, in all caps that way, I am, would come to mean two very important primary things. I am creator and I am redeemer. Creation and redemption. I made all things and I will one day make all things new. Creation and redemption. Some of you may remember that our pastor emeritus, Earl Palmer, sometimes uses an illustration of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, right? Let that bridge come to your mind here for a moment because just like the whole bridge hangs on these two great supports or towers, same thing with our faith. All hangs on the doctrine of creation. God made all things in the beginning. And redemption, that God will make, re, make all things new uh, in the end. So this is all what's embedded in the Israelite's mind when he or she hears, I, the Lord. Here's the one who speaks the promise to you. I made you. And I will redeem you. Personally. Directly. Now notice what we learn about ourselves if we hear this I speaking so boldly to us about who we are. What we learn is that we're wholly good. This is the doctrine of creation. God, don't make junk. You are good. You are very good. At the same time we learn, though, I am completely lost. I need a Savior. I can't live my life out of a paper bag. Right? These two things together give us insight into human nature at this point in history. And it's important to get that, that our nature is complex. It's complex. I say that because you and I happen to live in a culture right now that keeps reducing that complexity down to something that is untenably simple. And and so I urge you as a Christian to hold on to these two doctrines and to that complexity. Otherwise, I think you're not going to like the outcome. Our culture tells us, you know, that we need to toggle back and forth, or it does toggle back and forth without even really knowing it. On the one hand, there's everything's all good. Or on the other hand, hand uh, all is lost. That's the simplicity that we keep reaching for. And we have a simple view of human nature, that you just are what you are, and that's all you can expect, and it's all you get to live with. It's, it's just a simple nature. Or when we think about not just human nature, but human history, we have this simple view of human history and some of, sometimes we think of it as it's getting progressively better human history just always just bound to get better or sometimes we think it's just bound to get worse like now so oftentimes we think we're hurtling towards destruction but either way this does not take account of the nature of humanity that God speaks to the Israelite the Israelites and those who are their heirs by faith can understand that we are complicated and that our nature does not collapse into one or the other. We have to hold on to both creation and redemption, both our goodness 
and our lostness together. That God sees both and to both and in both, he gives us a great promise. And this is where the transformation begins. This is the heart of deep uh, guidance. In the presence of the I who promises. So there's a practice that emerges in the text. If you read it, and I hope you'll go back and read it tonight or later this week, you'll see that the practice is confessions. This practice of confession grows right in the middle. This is first-person narrative. This psalmist tells us his own personal story of confession. It's as if he says to us, oh, I am so drawn to this I as to a lover who sees more in me than I see in myself. Oh, I'm drawn and then at the same time, oh, I'm crushed and humbled by my, in my sin before this one. There's a holiness. There's also this total forgiveness. And it's only from the security, he talks about hiding place. It's only from the security of total forgiveness that I actually can tell the truth about my lostness, that I dare to even look and see what's broken inside of me. It's only when I know that there is a solution that I can actually look at the problem. Before he meets the Lord, this I, there's a sense in the narrative of this psalmist that he lived within a destructive silence. That's the word he uses. A destructive silence. In the silence, he says, my strength was drying up. My body was wasting away. You know, generations before Sigmund Freud and the phrase psychosomatic. Here's this description of the physical impact of our lives, denying the lostness of our lives. He lives in the silence, as Karl Barth says, in which he refused to be what he was, a transgressor, a sinner, a debtor. And if you can't be that, then you can't be a forgiven person. And that's the importance. See, you can refuse your brilliance as an image of God and refuse the doctrine of creation, or you can refuse your lostness as a sinner, that's the doctrine of redemption, but not in the presence of the eye of divine promise. Not before, as we will eventually see in history, the cross of Jesus Christ. Here we meet creator and redeemer. Here we hold on to our own goodness and our own lostness. Here we find that both the truth of of Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and the truth of Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me, I am both. I'm good and I'm lost. This is the irreducible complexity of human nature and of human history. But here's one who addresses us in both, creator and redeemer. St. Paul picks up on this rich Psalm 32. He quotes it in in Romans 4 in his grand epistle. And he tells us a second time that this I is both the Lord of Israel, he agrees there with the psalmist, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then right in that context, he says something so fascinating, it just defies the religious impulse entirely and humanism. He says, the one who speaks this I is the one who, quote, justifies the ungodly. Romans 4 or 5. Stranger words were never spoken. He justifies the ungodly. Boy, God has this God has it on its head. We're supposed to justify the godly. You're good. You're good. He justifies the ungodly. This is grace. Oh, here's the good news of the gospel. He will make right at the end what he made well in the beginning. I will, he promises. This is where the guidance begins. It's where it continues. This is what drives the transformation of our lives into maturity. By the way, this is why we're here right now. 
This is why we worship. I, I love what Pastor Aaron said last week in his message. If you didn't get it, go back and listen to that message a second time. You know, when we worship together, Pastor Ken led us in this prayer of confession and assurance of pardon, just like this psalmist says in verse five, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We confess our sin, we do that early in the service and then we come, we open the scripture, not to hear my voice, but to hear the voice of the Lord, to receive counsel from God and he speaks to us through Jesus Christ. It's a mystery. Paul calls it the foolishness of preaching. I have no idea how this works. And at the same time, then we respond. We hear his promise and we respond in faith and we begin to pray and speak back to him. We call it prayer. We're speaking back in Jesus Christ to God. And then out of this experience, this joyful experience, the happiness that he describes in these verses, there's a shout of joy. Happy are those whose transgressions is forgiven, verse one. A shout of joy in verse 11. We begin to sing. We make a joyful noise. And I love to hear you. I hear that and I'm encouraged. But this is what we do. Don't miss this experience. It, it's not that dramatic any one given week. It's not like, whew, that Sunday really changed my life. No, it's the pattern. It's week after week, gathering and being sent, gathering and being sent. You look back 30, 60 years later and you go, oh my goodness, I am a different person because of that experience of God's faithfulness to his promises that we shared as a community, as a church. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. This is how he fulfills his promise. What a great promise. A great, precious and very great promise, Peter would say. Saint Augustine engraved in the wall above his bed these words. And they say that this Psalm 32 is Saint Augustine's favorite of all the Psalms. If you don't know St. Augustine, he was one of the greatest thinkers who ever lived. He was an African, lived in North Africa at the time of the, the end of the Roman Empire, 4th, 5th century. It was a time which the world just seemed to be completely falling apart. And some days, he was very honest, even his own life was falling apart. He had this promise inscribed on his wall so that when he would get out of bed to face the day, there it would be. And towards the end of his life, when that bed was simply a sick bed, and there he lay, he could still read it. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. Maybe there's someone here today in need of guidance. Here's a promise for you. Psalm 32, verse 8. If you've lost the way, if you hope to find a new way, if you want to find his way, then come, he says, come. I am the good shepherd. I know your name and you will hear my voice. Put your trust in me, he says. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you face, turn to me. I have come to seek and to save the lost and to give my life a ransom for many. Come, Jesus says, follow me. And when you do, the one who made you and redeemed you will guide you. That's his promise. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Let's pray. God, I don't, I don't actually believe anybody's here by accident today. Not a single one. Whether we're on the live stream or listening later or here in this room, I, I believe you guided us to this moment. 
because you want to get through to us. And so we pray right now, if we can embrace that idea, a prayer of confession, and, and then to sing a song of joy for our forgiveness, and then to step out of this place knowing that however twisted the path has been and will be, you will be the one guiding us. Lord Jesus, if there's anybody here today who has never confessed their sin, who has never embraced the forgiveness, that wipes the slate clean, that gives us eternal life, that opens us to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, God living in us, Lord, we pray for their salvation right now. Would you speak directly to their soul that they might say to you now, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, for my sins. I give you all that I know of myself to all that I know of you and invite, joyfully invite you to take me, take my life. Let me bring glory to your name. Let me participate in the purpose for which you gave me life. Let me join brothers and sisters in Christ in opening ourselves to the coming of your kingdom and the transformation of all things. You can pray that prayer right now. You step from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. This is the promise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.